0: So now we've got this heavy toolbox um, but we don't know who to treat because like the risk factors are pretty imprecise and even chest pain turns out not to be of cardiac origin in the vast majority of people. So I think when you think about the problem to solve there's an identification problem we've got to find the right people who who need the treatment because they're very sick and and either are aware due to symptoms or unaware because it's silent and then there's the treatment which I think I did this sort of nerdy exercise of going through all of those blockbuster medications, and I just assumed for academic purposes that they were all additive in their um, benefit. It turns out when you add it all up, there's a more than 90% reduction in heart attacks. So in theory, we have enough therapies on this earth that we can eradicate this disease. We just have to find the right people to actually treat.
1: This is the Visible Voices Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Risa Lewis. Before we get started, here's a word about the Nocturnists.
0: Hey
2: there, Visible Voices listeners. I'm Emily Silverman, a doctor in San Francisco and creator and host of The Nocturnists, a medical storytelling live show and podcast where healthcare workers share stories of joy, sorrow, and self-discovery. Check us out wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Hi, listeners, thanks for joining, and today I'm delighted to bring you my conversation with two cardiologists, two friends, Dr. Sharon Hayes and Dr. James K. Min. Sharon is a professor of cardiovascular medicine. She founded and maintains an active clinical practice at the Mayo Clinic, Women's Heart Clinic. She has many research interests. These include sex and gender-based cardiology, cardiovascular conditions primarily affecting women, and something called SCAD which is Spontaneous Coronary Artery Dissection. Jim Min is the founder and CEO of CLEARLY. Previously, he was a professor of radiology and medicine at the Weill Cornell Medical College and director of the Dalio Institute of Cardiovascular Imaging. This is located at New York Presbyterian Hospital. Both Sharon and Jim have been working their whole careers on prevention, prevention of heart attacks, as well as other aspects of cardiovascular disease. Let's get to the conversation where Sharon's really breaking it down for us. One common misconception is that
2: heart attacks happen because of a, you know, slow or gradual, or maybe fast, buildup of plaque like liming of a pipe, you know, it gradually. But most heart attacks actually are very sudden. And I think that's where um, some of uh, Jim's sort of, uh, of, insights can be very helpful because it's when a plaque actually ruptures. It isn't just slowly narrowing down the blood vessel and restricting flow. It's this plaque, which I sometimes describe, you know, it's the grunge inside caused by cholesterol and other things, not a very technical term, that then is exposed to the bloodstream and then it blocks the blood flow. And so that's very hard to predict. We've all heard of somebody, oh, I had a stress test a month ago, and then I had a heart attack. And so I think it has been for we cardiologists trying to better predict those people who um, are pre-symptomatic, who are at higher risk, because we're all at risk for cardiovascular disease, but there's a huge range. So I'd say that's one of those things that people either um, misconstrue. Um, and I think the other thing is somehow a lot of people think that Gosh, if we control all those risk factors, if we stop smoking, if we do all of the things, we won't have a heart attack. Well, we know that um, the majority of patients or a substantial minority of patients who have heart attacks don't have typical risk factors, high cholesterol. They never smoked. Maybe they have a family history. So there's a lot that we are not currently able to predict based on an individual. We have great studies of hundreds of thousands of people to say you're probably at higher risk or probably at lower risk. But to say what is your exact risk is kind of a holy grail because it would help us not undertreat or overtreat individuals.
0: If you think about the magnitude of the problem, it truly is the number one public health epidemic. So I'll give you two statistics that may surprise you. The first is that there are 40% more cardiovascular deaths across the world than all cancers combined on a yearly basis. Like, And if you want to put that into some frame of reference of how big this epidemic is, um, in 2020, there are twofold more deaths from cardiovascular disease than there were from deaths from COVID-19. Like that's how big this epidemic is. And so, you know, what we have, Sharon and I have done is we've spent our lives trying to understand like how we can identify these people before the event occurs because a third of them die um, at their index heart attack event and a third of them develop heart failure, which is the equivalent of trying to breathe out of a straw underwater for the rest of your life. That's how painful and morbid that disease state is. And then I think I just echo what Sharon said, which is, You know, everybody thinks of um, heart attacks as, oh, you know, I get some chest pain and shortness of breath and I go to my doctor and he evaluates me. Turns out more than half um, of people that the first diagnosis of having coronary artery disease, that plaque buildup, is either suffering a heart attack or dying from one. That means they don't have any symptoms before their event. And what we have done as a field in cardiology is we've talked about what's called primary versus secondary prevention. What does that mean? That means in the patients who don't, who haven't had a heart attack, that's they fit into the primary prevention bucket. And then the secondary prevention people we treat more aggressively because they're the ones who've had heart attacks in the past. But I think what we need to do as a field is to focus on disease rather than on events or symptoms. So think about, all diseases like breast cancer, or colon cancer, or lung cancer, they're all asymptomatic until they're not, right? The fact that like we as a field have focused so much on symptoms, I think has done a disservice for that quote-unquote primary prevention population who could be riddled with heart disease, and yet we're not treating them or tending to them as aggressively as we should. So I think that um, if there's any one take-home message, is that just because you don't have symptoms does not mean that you are not at risk. Like the disease is silent for the most for the majority of people until the event occurs.
1: So enter the mission of Clearly and what you are making your life's work.
0: So the purpose of Clearly is to create a world without heart attacks. And, you know, we had a very successful preventive um, care program in at Cornell and New York Presbyterian. We ran it for about seven and a half years before I left. Um, we hired a dear friend of mine and colleague to be the director, Dr. Erica Jones. And we had about four cardiologists and we used disease to guide our treatment, right? So if you had more disease, we were more intense with the therapies. And when I say therapies, I don't mean getting a surgery. I don't mean getting a stent procedure. I mean good medical therapy and good lifestyle interventions. And fast forward seven years, we didn't see a single heart attack. And so, you know, in our little tiny microcosm on the Upper East Side of Manhattan, we'd created a world without heart attacks. And so, and I'm not saying, I think right now our field is like very focused on a symptom driven, care paradigm. And I think that our, our products and services really allow you to uh, dive in deep into those symptomatic patients who present with chest pain and shortness of breath and really help understand the etiology of what's causing their symptoms. Um, but the bigger goal and the grander goal, which is going to take, you know, a lot of evidence and a lot of randomized trials is to really demonstrate that like we should shift this field away from just focusing on symptoms and rather focus on the disease so that we can prevent these events from happening. So simple one sentence summary is that. We wake up every day to try to create a world without heart attacks by early identification and getting people on really minimally um, non-invasive treatments uh, related to lifestyle and medical therapy.
1: Specifically, what imaging are we talking about?
0: So we use a tool called a coronary CT angiogram. Um, it sounds fancy, but it's not. It's like a fancy x-ray, essentially, is what it is. It's also not that new, right? As I alluded to before, it was released for commercial purposes by the imaging vendors in the 2004-2005 uh, realm. But we really had to do these long-term studies because we've never been able to non-invasively quantify and characterize the type of buildup and plaque that is embedded within the walls of these heart arteries. And so we did a number of large-scale clinical trials, observational registries, randomized trials to really understand what we were seeing, how that affected somebody's outcome, and how we could influence the natural history of that outcome.
1: Sharon, are you using coronary CTs in your practice, or where does it play a role in your patient workup paradigm, treatment, etc.? Yeah, it's an evolving role, um, and I think that some of it has to do with the
2: evidence that is needed for us to get payment for it. Honestly, so if I wanted to, if I I can't currently in today's environment use a coronary CT angiogram on every patient who comes in for screening, and I think that's one of the that's one of the reasons that Jim is saying we need that evidence because that evidence is what we are going to be able to do that. Um, so. I'm using risk factors. I also use coronary calcification score, which is goes way back. Which is a, an even it's a it's a very crude um, surrogate, but it also tells us at least in some people there is some disease there. It just doesn't quantify it in that way. And so where I am using coronary CTA is unfortunately not to be able to screen every single patient to help decide where they need to go, um, but i am using it increasingly. Where I use it a lot, honestly, is in my coronary dissection patients because sometimes that is a way without having to go back in, perhaps, um, to look at their arteries because they don't have plaque, but they've had a tear in an artery. So I may use that actually as a diagnostic uh, tool to see have they healed. Is their current chest discomfort that they're having due to another SCAD or the fact that they haven't healed or otherwise? So I think we're where Jim's company and the product that he is looking at is really something we're all excited about because um, those of us who do preventive cardiology know we're falling short in our ability. We know we're over-treating people because their risk score is high. So we we have statins and they have side effects and they don't like it. But But if we knew they had no coronary disease, we really could change that and back off on treatment. And on the other hand, we're missing people, as Jim indicated, that are, that are just walking around waiting to have a heart attack, but we don't know it and they don't. Yeah.
1: So Jim, where is your company interfacing with people, with patients? Is it your conversations are with hospitals? Are you in the business of selling scanners? How exactly is clearly changing the face of coronary artery disease?
0: Yeah, it's a really good question and to answer that let me first uptail on what Sharon said because for clarity right now our um our company is focusing on the symptomatic population of people who present with chest pain or shortness of breath or other symptoms that are suggestive of coronary heart disease. We, we recognize that that is the current paradigm that we live in, both the clinical paradigm as well as the payer paradigm. And so that is where we're solely focused, where I believe that we can get to with this mammogram of the heart or, you know, similar analog. Is in the future, um, but that will require several large-scale randomized trials in order uh, to prove that point and prove the cost-effectiveness of such approach. And so, we're committed as a company to doing those trials. But I do want the listeners to understand that currently, um, this is typically reserved for the symptomatic patient. And then you ask, where do we interface? Like that that's a really great question. Like, and we thought about that a lot as we. You know, five years ago, when we conceived this idea of like, we wanted to create not an imaging tool, um, not an artificial intelligence tech tool, but to standardize a digital care pathway that would allow us to to standardize the evaluation. And uh, the guide, guide the physicians towards the proper treatment in, in a personalized fashion. So like we can usher the field away from population-based approaches, which are comparing a million people to another million people, but really treating the individual that you have in front of you to understand, despite the number of risk factors or the lack thereof, do you have disease or not? Does that disease, what type of disease do you have? And really help support the physicians to treat that. So when we go out into uh, the medical community, um, we interface with the clinicians. So even though we have an imaging tool that allows to, uh, you to translate all of the phenotypic findings, like the macroscopic findings of disease into ways that a patient can understand, a nurse can understand primary care, general cardiology, interventional cardiology, and so on, um, we thought that it was most important to be at the point of care delivery rather than, you know, downstairs in a basement with, you know, in radiology where the clinical care is not happening
1: yeah AI everybody's ears their eyes just perked up, even though we can 't see them, but our audience is now interested because everybody's reading about AI in the newspaper on the news where's this playing a role in your algorithm?
0: where I see the use case in healthcare um, coming there there's the common things um, where you can use AI to do image segmentation. What does that mean? like if I take a picture of like you know a um, a field and I want an AI algorithm to identify all the trees. Um, that's a segmentation, um, uh, problem. And so that I think the AI is quite good at, that's not new, Risa that's been around for 20 years with different forms of AI. It's just, we've gotten to, to better, um, approaches where I think that the greatest advance is going to be within healthcare in the near term future is, you know, if, if you have a million points of data, um, That's very useful to learn about populations or people, but how do you reduce all of those dimensions of data into an output that you can act upon, right? So if I tell you somebody's got a creatinine of this and they've got this type of plaque and they've got this kind of narrowing and this kind of symptoms, and I just keep going on and on and on and list for you 17,000 variables, what do you do with that? Like That's a great problem to be solved by a machine learned algorithm where you can do multi-dimensionality data reduction, take a million points of data. But our output, our ability to treat people is either, okay, you go home, you don't need anything. Hey, let's change your lifestyle a bit. Hey, let's treat you with medications or let's put in a stent. I mean, the it's very finite, the output options or directions that we have. So I think that's where the the machine learning is going to help us is really to take all of these different types of data and amalgamate them, integrate them, and output them into an actionable clinical insight that a healthcare professional can actually use.
1: Sharon, you've been a very involved with imaging, cardiac imaging, and, you know, in my world, in the emergency department, there's the use of ultrasound at the bedside, and a lot of these companies are increasingly trying to sell their product, speak about the positives of their product by this integration of the machine learning and AI. What's been your your experience, or, you know, what are your thoughts, optimistic versus uh, a bit skeptical of, of, uh, of all this? Yeah.
2: Yeah, well, I think there's a, a couple of things specifically related to imaging. Um, I, I think that the bedside point-of-care ultrasound, particularly for cardiologists who we, you know, it is a mainstay for us to be to able to do echocardiograms, right? We could, we can look at, at so many things so quickly. And having point-of-care, it's an extension of my ears. I think most of, uh, you know, today's cardiologists, their ears aren't nearly as good as our predecessors in listening and and hearing abnormalities in the heart because we haven't had we haven't had to if the only thing you had was a stethoscope you got really really good at a stethoscope and so to be able to see a patient and while I'm in there with examining them to be able to image and see oh they have fluid around their heart or their heart pumping function or they've got a very leaky valve those kinds of not using AI that's using you know brain power, but that's incredibly powerful. And so both the portability and the miniaturization and the more broad, um, availability, uh, is, has really, it's really been a game changer because, um, you know, We've even made it so our devices that we carry around, um, they go into the patient's medical record. We can decide to use it as a training or just because we want, or we can do it and put it in their record. It makes it really seamless. So I think that part of it, and again, that's not going to diagnose the type of heart disease we've just been talking about. And I think that was one point I wanted to make because heart disease is a term that gets thrown around a lot, and it most often means coronary artery disease or plaque buildup. But heart disease encompasses everything, heart muscle disease, electrical disease, everything about the heart. What we've been talking about with um, Jim's company is really the most common, which is atherosclerosis. And that is something that we're all at risk for, but some more than others, and that we have great tools to treat, And that's why, because some of the things that, some of the types of heart disease, whether you're born with it or, or it's spontaneous, and as of now, there's no treatment or prevention, it is the thing that if we, we have the tools increasingly and being able to identify them.
1: Many people are concerned about social determinants of health, health disparities, and is this just a rich white person's sort of access point or is this something that you know is global and you know you're bringing in uh, access for everybody no matter their insurance status
0: yeah it's a really good question like so i'll say it in in a couple of ways like if you look at the majority of large-scale cardiovascular outcomes trial they're they're very heavily weighted towards middle-aged white Caucasian males. Um, So that's why like, we don't actually quite understand heart disease the same way as we do in women or in minorities. And that's a huge um, problem. And so what I realized, though, is that once you do take, quote unquote, take a picture of somebody and use this non-invasive imaging tool, what you end up finding is that um, if you do prediction algorithms of what are the things that contribute to your prediction? Is it your age? Is it your race? Is it your um, where you live? Is it your whatever? Uh, It turns out all of those things get dwarfed um, by the disease findings. Because somebody with a lot of disease, whether they're black, white, woman, or man, acts exactly the same as if somebody who has that kind of disease, um, who is of different color and gender. And so by individualizing the care or personalizing the care, you democratize the care because you don't come in with the biases that uh, were present in in the clinical trial. So I think that's the biggest take home message of what we're trying to to do is to help usher the field of cardiology into an era of precision medicine or personalized care over what I call population-based care. Like if you think about your cholesterol levels, those were based on, a big group of thirty thousand people. They turned out to be mostly Caucasian white males. And so, you know, we we know a lot about that demographic, but we don't know a lot about others. And so I think the easiest way to combat that is to individualize and personalize care, and then you end up democratizing it.
2: I I, I think though that we don't want to minimize population health in the sense that there are things like eating vegetables and not smoking and things that we can tell everyone and it will benefit everyone. Even if you're not at risk for cardiovascular disease, if you don't smoke or you eat a healthy diet, you're likely setting an example for your neighbors or for your family. And so, and those things are relatively low cost on an individual basis. That's why there's been so much interest, particularly for um, populations around the world, who don't have access to to a doctor, much less an imaging modality like this for the poly pills. And for those who don't know a poly pill, it's got a little bit of blood pressure medicine. It's got a little bit of statin. It's got a little bit of, it's got some aspirin in it. And there've been a number of studies that shown this pill that costs pennies a day actually reduces risk. That's the opposite end of what Jim is doing, but there is currently a real role for that because on a population basis, as we talked about at the beginning, this is the number one killer globally. And so we want to do both and because we have to do the and, i.e. the population base, until we have a tool that is actually deliverable, meaning affordable and accessible to to those people who currently do not have it. And and that's a long way away. So I think the, it's really important that we continue to address high blood pressure and high cholesterol and talk about healthy living and exercise because those are all proven entities to lower population risk and not just heart disease. They lower risk of cancer and osteoporosis in women and all of those things. So I think important um, as we get excited about the democratization and the better understanding on an individual basis, we have a long way to go on just getting people to the basics of of, of health.
1: Sharon, someone now listening to our episode now comes to you in cardiology clinic and says, I want one of those coronary CTs. Uh, what should... We expect how can we set expectations for listeners, for patients that are coming into the emergency department, to their internal medicine doctor, to their cardiologist? Well, I think if they came in
2: with symptoms to the emergency department, the likelihood, at least at our organizations, that they they would get a coronary CT angiogram is pretty high actually in the ED. Uh, We call it a triple rule out. And somebody with chest pain who comes in, we can rule out a pulmonary embolus or blood clot to the lung, a dissection of the aorta, and look at their coronary arteries and triage them in a very effective way. So I think that's kind of a separate group. Who? It's that symptomatic group that that Jim's been talking about. For the person who, just out of curiosity, um, gosh, am I at risk for um, for heart disease? Do I have it? And I actually see those patients. They had a family member who had a premature heart attack. They want to know, what do I have? And, um, and what I would probably do now, because of their insurance reimbursement, honestly, would be, let's do the risk factor assessment, um, like both lifestyle and things like blood pressure and statins. And if they were at intermediate risk based on that, consider doing a coronary calcification scan, which is very different, but that is one of those decision makers for somebody, particularly a young person, a 30-year-old, if they really have no risk factors and no coronary disease based on that. So it's a ways from somebody walking in and saying they want it for a number of reasons. One, I I don't think we have the capacity right now to to truly screen. When you're talking about a screening um, test, like a mammogram you have to build the capacity to really do it as a screening test and and we're certainly not there yet
0: in the current payer system like we we are allowed to we get authorized to do testing or more advanced testing on symptomatic patients i do think that's a fundamental problem like i think if we put the kinds of healthcare resources towards prevention and early diagnosis and treatment, I mean, we could save a tremendous amount of money. But in the example that you gave, Risa, you as an ER physician and Sharon describing this um, protocol that they have at the Mayo Clinic, I mean, the Mayo Clinic is one of the most well-run healthcare organizations in the world. And think about why they would do that. It's not only the healthcare benefits, but it's the total cost of care savings to the healthcare system that would allow it. So, I mean, think about in every hospital that we've practiced at, the ER is clogged up with a tremendous number of folks who are presenting with chest pain and shortness of breath who who have a very unpleasant experience there, right? They sit in a gurney for two days and they don't know why they can't go home and And like, so you could do a lot of streamlining to make the process much more efficient within the emergency department to get the sick patients admitted and to get the healthy patients discharged and going home within a few hours. So I think that, you know, while I tend to think mostly about the clinical benefit of doing something, there's a huge economic benefit as well. If you can use a tool with high diagnostic certainty to guide who should get admitted and who should not.
1: Are there countries that are doing it right and they really have it right right now with the the protocol that you're developing, Jim?
0: I think the closest one probably is the United Kingdom. Um, they were the ones that led the world in 2017. They um, surprised the field of cardiology by recommending coronary CT angiography as um, level 1A above any other tool. Um, that was um, a document written by the National Institute of Clinical Excellence in the United Kingdom. About two years later, the European Society of Cardiology said, yep, I think you're right. And they, they also elevated coronary CT angiography to level 1A. And it took until about 2021 uh, where the American Heart Association, American College of Cardiology followed suit. So, I mean, in on paper um, and, ev- and based on the evidence, it should be the worldwide standard of care. Um, period. The evidence shows that the outcomes are better for patients who undergo it over, say, a stress test or other, other approach. Um, we just, there's a lot of moving parts and a lot of variables that, you know, influence behavior. And one of the, um, the variables is what Sharon mentioned, which is access, right? Like, I mean, it's, even though it's 15 years old, like in medicine, actually things move pretty slowly. So 15 years is actually pretty recent and, For you to retrain an entire body of cardiologists to do something different than they've been accustomed to doing for the last 40, 50 years, it just takes time. And so um, part of that is on us to help educate. Um, Part of it is on sort of payers to help understand that prevention is always cheaper than treating late stage and stage disease. Um, Part of it is on getting the access so that we can get the institutions to really start doing this so that people can get the the test that they deserve.
2: I also think that, well, and I am probably among preventive cardiologists and I, I work with a lot of fellows and, you know, I know based on them coming out of a room and saying, well, then we should get a stress test. I said, they have no symptoms whatsoever, but they've got all of this. Why wouldn't we do a coronary CTA? And it's sort of a light bulb goes on, I said, because we have a fair amount of evidence that suggests that that's going to give us the answer, because you have to have a 70% plus blockage before a stress test is going to help us with that. And so I think it is a following the evidence and recognizing it is a change in practice. We all grew up doing stress tests in cardiology. And um, being able and recognizing, but I think maybe I came to it earlier on than a lot because my practice is women and stress tests have failed women in many ways, um, in that uh, they weren't included in trials. And so the way we interpret them um, hasn't, uh, and particularly standard stress tests, has just failed women um, in large part. And so we've been looking for something that would address those issues in women. And as Jim said, if you've got plaque, it's going to show up in women, just like it does in men. And so this test can be really helpful in that regard.
0: I think one other thing, Risa, is like to try to think about the problem that we're solving, right? So, you know, five, six years ago, we had a very limited arsenal of what we could treat with people with, right? We had statin medications, we had um, in some very sick people, um, a low dose aspirin. And that was about it. Like, um, And in the last four or five years, we've seen the introduction of at least a dozen new classes of blockbuster medications that really save lives and reduce heart attacks and strokes and death. So now we've got this heavy toolbox, um, but we don't know who to treat because like the risk factors are pretty imprecise. And even chest pain turns out not to be of cardiac origin in the vast majority of people. So I think when you think about the problem to solve, there's an identification problem. We've got to find the right people who who need the treatment because they're very sick and and either are aware due to symptoms or unaware because it's silent. And then there's the treatment, which I think I did this sort of nerdy exercise of going through all of those blockbuster medications. And I just assumed for academic purposes that they were all additive in their um, benefit. It turns out when you add it all up, there's a more than 90% reduction in heart attacks. So in theory, we have enough therapies on this earth that we can eradicate this disease. We just have to find the right people to actually treat and not just treat everybody, but treat people with precision in a personalized fashion.
1: The Risa wrap up. Special thanks to Jim and to Sharon for joining me in conversation. And I really loved the volley that they had back and forth in talking about cardiology, heart imaging, and the prevention of heart attacks. In the emergency department, we have a lot of patients presents with chest pain, shortness of breath, and other aspects of disease that could be a heart attack. And the question is, how do we prevent it? How do we treat it? How do we diagnose it? And the work that Jim and Sharon are doing in the prevention of cardiovascular disease, looking at risk factors, looking at symptom and presentation, and sort of what Jim really highlighted, that return on investment, we get so much more out of preventing heart attacks than treating people with heart attacks after they've happened. That's it for this week, audience. See you next time. The Visible Voices Podcast amplifies voices both known and unknown discussing topics of healthcare, equity, and current trends. Our production team includes Stacy Gitlin, Dr. Giuliano Deportu, and me, Dr. Risa E. Lewis. Please find me on social media, at Risa E. Lewis, and through the website, thevisiblevoicespodcast.com. If you like the podcast, please rate and review us. Share the podcast with a friend today. Thank you so much for listening, and as always, to be continued.